Welcome to the All People's Church podcast. We believe in loving God, strengthening families, and developing leaders. We are so excited for you to hear this life-changing message recorded live at one of our worship experiences. Remember to share and subscribe to this podcast and enjoy the message. Yeah. Okay, here's what it says. And again, Jesus spoke to them. Who's them? Who's he talking to? Those of you who've been here for the last couple weeks. He's talking to... He's, yeah, he's not talking to the disciples here. He's talking to the religious leaders, the chief priests, and the elders of the temple. Remember, he's in the temple. There's a dispute, and he's talking to them. He speaks to them in another parable, saying, verse 2, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they did not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready, come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off. One to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their cities. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those who were invited are not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went into the roads and gathered all whom they could find, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Hmm. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we have in your word. Holy Spirit, we invite you now. We know that you're already here. You're in us. You're with us. But God, we invite you into our mind, into our hearts. Lord, into the deepest parts of our being. Uh, May you have access to all of us tonight as we lean in, as we press in to hear from you and from your word tonight. Uh, Let none none among us be distracted. Uh, Let none among us be hindered from hearing you plainly and clearly. As always, Holy Spirit, we ask that you open our eyes and open our ears, that we may see and hear you plainly and clearly clearly stretch us, challenge us, allow us to become more consistent and deeper followers of Jesus. Let us exalt him tonight. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen. Go ahead, be seated. If you haven't said hi to somebody, go ahead and say hi. Welcome them to tonight. All right, tonight we are talking about the parable of the wedding feast, the parable of the wedding 
feast. So let's talk a little bit about the context. What has happened? What, what's something major? Here's your opportunity to participate. Lean in, open your mouth, get involved. What is something major that has happened before this moment that we just read? He cleared the temple. Jesus cleared the temple, right? He enters into Jerusalem. They welcome him, right, with, with palm branches, with coats. Uh, what animal does he come riding on? A donkey, right? And that was a sign. That was, that was a wink and a nudge back at King David, right? That's, what they, that's why they call him Son of David, which was a title given to the Messiah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, he clears the temple. What happens after that? Do, do the religious and those in charge of the temple courts, uh, do they celebrate what Jesus has done? No, no, no. They, they confront him. You remember that? And they ask him a question. Does anyone remember what the question is? That's right. It was a question of authority. Who told you that you have authority? Who gave you this authority? By what authority do you do these things? And Jesus responds to them with three parables. Three parables. Now, for extra, extra points tonight... Does anyone remember the two? Well, let's, let's go back to the first one. Does anyone remember what the first parable was about? Anyone? There were two, two sons. Absolutely. Two sons. And the father of the sons commanded the sons to go work in the field. One of the sons said, I'm not doing it, but then later changed his mind and did it. The other son said, I will do it, but later changed his mind and didn't do it. And Jesus said that the one who did it ultimately accomplished the will of his father. What was the point of that? The point of that parable was obedience. The point of that was to say, hey, uh, everyone has an opportunity to change their mind, to, to repent. Remember we talked about that word, repentance, which means to change your mind, change your direction. That was the first parable. Anyone remember what the second parable was about? The farmer, yeah, and the tenants of the vineyard, right? And so there's a farmer, uh, and he has uh, tenants that he hires to take care of the vineyard. He comes back, and what does, what does he go back wanting? Fruit. Remember that? And that ties back into the, the fig tree that Jesus curses. Of course, it's all symbolic having to do with that the religious system and religious activity can be done without actually having life in it, right? So you can be religious and still be dead. That's the point, right? That Jesus was trying to get across. And of course, who was he directing all of this toward? The religious leaders he's speaking to. And so Jesus is responding to the religious leaders with three parables. And here in parable number three, Jesus gives his final blow, if you will, as a response to the question of the Pharisees, who gave you this authority? Who gave you this authority? Now, you remember Jesus had an opportunity to respond to them, but he decided to give them three parables instead because they refused to answer the question of John the Baptist. Remember that? He says, I'll tell you, if you answer this one question about John the Baptist, they don't answer the question because they're scared of what the people will do. And Jesus says, okay, if you don't want to answer that question, let me give you three, three parables 
three parables. Um, and, and who is Jesus trying to get them to see in the parable? Themselves. Right? It's, it's like the whole Nathan and David scenario. Nathan confronts David with a story. David gets enraged. And Nathan says, hey, that's you in the story, David. Right? We know David repents. But these religious individuals, the chief priests, the elders of the temple, well, they're not going to repent. They're not going to be like the son who first say, no, we don't want to do it. And then they go do it. They're, they're actually not going to repent. So let's dig into this a little bit. Um, Jesus tells this last parable, the wedding feast that a king prepares for his son. You've noticed all of these, um, all of these parables have either a, a father, a king, or a master. And all of the parables have servants and a son. Have you noticed the theme has been consistent? Jesus is trying to show them something. What did the crowd yell when Jesus came into Jerusalem on a donkey? Son. Ah, son. Jesus is implementing. He's trying to continuously put in their imagination uh, those, that phrase that they said when Jesus entered into Jerusalem. Son of David, meaning Messiah. And so Jesus is not using the language of sonship on accident. He's trying to get them to see that he is the one that they were professing to be the son of David, the Messiah. You with me so far? All right, let's go through this uh, verse by verse, and we'll figure out what this parable is saying, what Jesus is trying to do, and um, we'll get some concluding thoughts and have a good time, hopefully. So the kingdom of heaven, Jesus tells parables. What are parables? Parables are illustrations. They paint a picture, right, um, for what Jesus is trying to teach. So he says, the kingdom of heaven, may be compared to this. And then he tells the story. Now, the kingdom of heaven is what? The rule and, and reign. Of who? Of God. That's right. The rule and reign of God. If it's God's kingdom, it has to do with his rule and his reign. If it's your kingdom, it can be about your rule and your reign. But when it's God's kingdom, it's about his rule and his reign, his dominion. So he says, the kingdom of heaven, the rule and the reign of God may be compared to this. There's a king who gives a wedding feast. Now, do we know any other scripture that talks about a wedding feast? That's right. Revelations, right? I believe it's Revelation 19, 7 that talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb. Um, that we will have one day with all saints and with Jesus celebrating Jesus as the Lamb of God. Isn't that going to be incredible? Uh, it's going to be powerful. It will be an incredible moment. So we know that Revelation talks about that. And so there is that connection there in terms of future eternity. There will be a feast that the Bible talks about. It may be compared to a king who gave a feast, notice, for his son. Again, the language of son is not there by accident. And he sent his servants. Now, uh, this isn't the first time he's using this language of, of sending serv servants. The master, remember, of the vineyard sent servants. And what, what did we say servants equal? That's right. Prophets, 
or uh, messengers, right, of God, prophets or messengers of God. The king sends his messengers, his servants, to call those who were, those who were invited. So there is an invitation. I need you to catch this. The invitation has been sent. The servants are not sent out to invite guests. You with me so far? It does not say he sent his servants to invite guests. It says he sent his servants to call, to call those who were invited. Now, who do we think these invited are? Any guesses? We're taking guesses right now. Who are the invited? The Jews? Wow, first try. You're a great student hero. Um, Absolutely. These are the Jewish people, right? This is Israel. So we know Israel is God's chosen people. God has made a covenant with Israel to reveal himself, reveal who he is through them to the nations of the world, right? That's what the Bible says. So they are the invited. And his servants call those who are invited to the wedding feast that he is holding for who? His son. So the king wants to celebrate his son and Israel is invited. But, this is unfortunate, they, who's the they? Would not come. Now, what do, you, what do we think this means? What does it mean that Jesus is illustrating, hey, there, there are those who are invited, they've been called, but they won't come? Any guesses? Disobedience. disobedience. How many would say disobedience? Any other guesses? A little louder? They're not honoring. See, that's, a, that's, a, that's, an, interesting, that's an interesting perspective, right? So we could put lack of honor. Now, that's interesting because in ancient time, um, when, when people were invited, um, not all invitations were the same. An invitation from a friend or a family um, was not the same thing as an invitation from the king. Right? This is, this is no ordinary invitation. This is an invitation from the king. And in ancient time, refusing the king's invitation would actually be unthinkable. So as Jesus is telling this parable, his crowd, the audience that is listening to him, would probably be in shock, like, or maybe look at each other and kind of laugh, like, who would, who would reject the king's invitation? Come on. Who, who, would, who would be silly enough, dumb enough, dishonoring enough, disobedient enough? Who would, who would reject the king's invitation? That's important. That's important because what Jesus is trying to get them to see, that the invitation that he brings as the Messiah is no ordinary invitation. 
That if, if you would be dumbfounded at the thought of somebody rejecting the king's invitation, you should just as much be dumbfounded as somebody rejecting Jesus' invitation. You with me so far? The kingdom of heaven is like. So refusing the king's invitation would be, would be um, unthinkable. What do you mean, Jesus? There, there are people who would reject the king's invitation. He then says, in verse four, again, someone say again. Now this is interesting because um, here's the beauty about God. Because the king represents God. If, in case you haven't caught that yet, let me wrap your attention back in. The king represents God. God sends an invitation out. He calls his servants, hey, go call those who have been invited. Those who have been invited do not want to come. But again, the king sends more servants. See, this is the beauty about God. God is by nature a pursuer of those who belong to him. He, he pursues those that are his. And God invites you over and over and over again. How many have found that to be true in your life and in your story, in your testimony? You have noticed God has been pursuing you. He's the one who has been inviting you over and over and over again, even in moments where you have rejected him, even in moments where you have disobeyed him, dishonored him. God again extends his grace and his mercy and he invites you. Come. So the prophet Isaiah prophesying of the, the new covenant that is to come describes God saying to his people, come, let us reason together. God is a pursuer. When Adam and Eve sinned, they went and hid. I need you to catch that. When God sees your sin, he doesn't go into hiding. You go into hiding. And as you go into hiding, it is God who comes out looking for you. Where, where are you, God said to Adam and Eve. In the midst of their sin, in the midst of their shame, in the midst of their guilt, in the midst of God calling those who have been invited and being rejected, God comes out and he invites again. He invites again. God is a pursuer. In fact, if you would read the Bible from front to back, you would see that God is a pursuer. If you read the Old Testament, sometimes you would probably pull your hair out frustrated with Israel and the decisions they make. And you would yet see the mercy and the grace of God because he would continue to pursue after them, continue to call them back into covenant, call them back into relationship to return once again to their first love. That's the kind of God we have. That's the kind of God we have. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited. Now watch this. Here's what God wants to tell them. See, someone say see. I have prepared my dinner. 
Any other scriptures where God has prepared things? What about Psalm 23? Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Right? He leads me, he guides me, he restores my soul. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I have no evil because his rod and his staff that comfort me. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Right? How about, how about post-resurrection when the disciples are defeated and Peter says, I'm going fishing and the disciples go, hey, we're coming too and they catch nothing and who is there on the shore with breakfast already prepared? Jesus. An invitation to come. Come and see what I have prepared for you. He says, tell them, tell them what I have prepared. I've prepared a dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything is ready. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. All you have to do is accept the invitation the master, the king is saying. Everything is ready. You don't have to do anything but come. You, you have already been invited. You have to do nothing but come. It's all prepared. Everything has been prepared. Now, let's look at the next scripture. Verse five says, but they paid no attention. They paid no attention and what? Went off. Went to his farm, went to his business, and the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. And killed them. They really want nothing to do with this king. They really want nothing to do with this king. Now, what's interesting is the first couple of people they go off to notice their farm and to their businesses, which inherently are not bad things, right? I have a farm to tend, I gotta take care of my crops, and I have a business, make some money, support my family. These are not bad things. And yet, and yet we're gonna find out um, that even though they were not sin, they still cost them. Isn't that interesting? See, the things that cost us in life are not just sin. Um, sin absolutely costs you, but more than that, what costs you in life is when you pay no attention. That you go through life Right? Living on accident. Going through the motions. No intentionality, no attention to what is around you, what God is inviting you into. You, they paid no attention, went off, went to his farm, went to his business, while the other sees the servants, treated him shamefully, and killed them. Now, what happens to this? The next verse, verse 7, says, The king 
was angry. Meaning the king expects that the response to his invitation would be that they come. Right? He's angry, and notice, this time he doesn't send his servants. This time he sends his troops. Right? So, so this is now, you, he's become militant. He, he is sending his troops, and what do they do? They destroy those murderers and burn their city. He is angry. What does he say? He says, hey, listen. He, he calls his servants, and he says to the servants, the wedding feast is ready. But those who were invited were not what? Okay, this is interesting. This is interesting. Those who were invited were not worthy. They were invited, but they were not worthy. They were invited, but they were not worthy. What made them not worthy? Disobedience? Not paying attention. Not, not, not paying attention, their attitude... Um, they, they ultimately, we know, because of their, their response, they, they ultimately do what? They reject the king. Right? And so this idea of them not being worthy can, can also mean worthy. There can also mean willing. They were not willing to come. Right? They did not want to come. Invited again, don't want to come. They kill the dudes. They, they seize the servants. They go off into their farms, into their, perp- into their, uh, into their business. And so um, God is looking for those who are worthy, and those who are worthy are those who are willing. You see that? Then here we have a- a- another version of Matthew 28, don't we? Go therefore... Right? The same concept here. To the notice where? Main roads. Your translations might say highways. And invite to the wedding feast. Now watch this. As many as you can find. As many as you can find. Now any guess as to what the main roads here represent? The world. Right? Remember when Jesus says, hey, you ha- uh, my house shall be a house of prayer? I told you he's quoting out of Isaiah, but the full verse is, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. That's the full verse that he is quoting from. And so what is he saying? If those who were initially invited represent Israel, then those who are on the highways and the main roads represent those outside of Israel. Israel. When he cleanses the temple, those who were not formally welcomed in, uh, the blind and the lame, come to him and are healed. You see that? So if those who are invited reject the invitation, then Jesus is going to bypass them and go elsewhere. Go into the nations, go to the Gentiles, which we see this ministry, this mission um, continues through the early church, through Paul. Paul is specifically called to the Gentiles. 
and to suffer for the sake of the gospel. And so Jesus is talking to religious leaders. He's saying, hey, listen, if you are not willing, then we will find anyone and as many that want to come. Now watch the next, watch the next verse. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered, notice, all whom they found, and I love this verse, both good and bad, both bad and good. This reminds me of John 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoso, whosoever, that whosoever, you're a whosoever, I'm a whosoever, we are the whosoevers that believed in him and therefore have received eternal life. We were not of those who were first invited. We were the ones on the roads and the highways, the whosoevers, the bad and the good. So, Jesus says, the wedding hall was filled with guests. See, God will build his church. No matter those who reject him, God will build his church. At the end of it all, the hall was filled. Even though those who were initially invited were those who rejected. How are we doing so far? Doing good? Now, remember, Israel is those who were invited, and Jesus says, because they were not worthy. Meaning, 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 if they were supposed to be worthy, then who does he turn to? The unworthy. The guests that fill the wedding hall are unworthy. The undeserving and the unworthy, those outside of Israel and outside of Israel's religious system were considered unworthy. They were considered unclean. They were considered undeserving of God's covenant because God chose Israel. And God will fill his house. Now, uh, I need to just make an important reminder here. Pastor already talked about this on Sunday. Uh, this does not mean that God is going to replace Israel with the church. For Romans tells us that there is a day coming where even they, their eyes, which have been momentarily shut and blinded to the reality of what God is doing, even their eyes will be open so that they can come in. So he's not replaced Israel, but he's demonstrating this to religious people that if you continue to be blind, if, if, the, if the worthy become unwilling, that he will go to the unworthy because they are willing. You see that? If the worthy become unwilling, then he will go to the unworthy because they are willing. So the wedding hall was filled. All right, but, someone say but. When the king came in to look at the guests, oh, that's interesting. Why does the king look at the guests? He sees there a man who, notice, has no 
no wedding garment. And, and he asks him, next verse, and he says to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. He was speechless. Now, this is interesting. Let's go back to this. When the king came in, he, he came in to notice, look at the guests. Now, imagine, imagine again, the, Jesus is talking about here the kingdom of God, and he's talking about here's what the kingdom of God looks like. And, and even though the invitation was sent out to both the good and the bad, the undeserving and the unwilling, I want you to see here the kingdom still has standards. The king expects people that have entered into his wedding feast to look a certain way. And when there is a particular man who is in the same crowd but does not look like what he should look like, what happens? Is he kept there? No, he, he is thrown out. The king then says to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. Notice in that place, meaning outer darkness is a literal physical place. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And we know that this ultimately is talking about. It's talking about hell. Now this side note, because I think it's important to, to mention here, um, the idea of universal salvation, the idea that, hey, at the end of the day, God is going to accept everyone, right? Um, all roads lead to him. God is, is just, have you, I don't know if you've heard this analogy, God is just uh, this, this big elephant and we're ultimately all touching different parts and when we describe him, it all sounds different, but ultimately it's the same elephant. Well, this parable, this scripture, um, completely goes against that ideology. Even out of the mouth of Jesus, he is saying there is no such thing as universal salvation. Not all are going to get in. In fact, this would tell us that those who get in and do not belong will be removed. And so God pushes back against this idea that everyone is going to get in. I want you to catch this. The invitation is universal, but salvation is not. The invitation goes out to as many, um, but salvation belongs to the one who receives him. Amen? Amen. How are you doing so far? We're good? All right. Um, Let's, let's talk about a couple of things here, um, and, then, and then we'll be done. Let me drink some water, make some closing remarks. Doing okay? Get anything out of this so far? Yeah? yeah. Okay. Um, what is the wedding garment? What is... The wedding 
garment. Now, in ancient times, here's what would happen. When kings would hold certain feasts, and a wedding feast would normally last a couple of days because in the ancient world, they would do this thing big. It wouldn't just be uh, a couple of days like it, or a one-day thing like it is here, a couple of hours. You, uh, you go, you, know, you celebrate, and then you're gone. This would be uh, a multiple-day event. It would be several days long, and in ancient times, uh, certain kings, especially those kings who were really wealthy, had an abundance. Uh, it was common for them to provide their guests with festive garments. Festive garments. So if you were to receive an invitation to come, that invitation, if you were to accept it, would come then with a wedding garment, with a, uh, with a festive garment. Come celebrate the king. And, 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 and ideally, normally, it, it would be um, uh, with certain colors and uh, a certain way to identify uh, maybe even a, 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 a badge or an image that would um, signify you, you are celebrating the king, you belong to the king. So the king, now we're done here, would give the wedding, or the, the garment. And he says, hey, where, where's, your, where's your garment? Where, where's, your, where's your garment? And what, does the guy give a response? No, he's speechless. Which, which lets us in on the fact that he didn't have a garment. It's not that he forgot it. He doesn't make an excuse. Hey, I left it at home. Oh, is that what that was for? I forgot to put that on. He, he's speechless. And I think the wedding garment, if I could make the connection here, um, I think the wedding garment represents the imputed righteousness of Jesus. I think that's what the wedding garment represents. The imputed righteousness of Jesus. And he finds a man that is clothed, but he's not clothed like everyone else who got in and was invited. He's not clothed in the imputed righteousness of Jesus, so he gets sent out into the outer darkness. And in essence, what Jesus is saying is, hey, you don't get in on your own merit. You don't get in wearing what you've always worn. He's talking to religious elites. You don't get in on the basis of your religious activity, on the basis that you look more pious than everyone else around you. That's not what gets you in. The question is, are you covered? Have you been covered in the righteousness of Jesus? Therefore, put on Christ. For he alone is the one that can allow us to get in, into the kingdom, into the wedding feast, into all that God has for us. The only ones who get in are those who are covered.
covered because the king has already prepared garments for you. We we take off the old, we put on the new, we stand in the righteousness of Jesus. For he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness. And so the garment represents the imputed righteousness of Jesus, not the earned righteousness. His, his, his righteousness is imputed on us. There's an exchange. Your unworthiness for his worthiness, your sin for his righteousness. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Now, 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 if we go back, if we go back, if we go back, um, it says he, he invites them again, but notice they pay no attention, even though everything has been prepared. In essence, what Jesus is saying here, he, he's saying, hey, hey, look what God has prepared for you. Look what he has prepared, but the Bible says they paid no attention to what God has prepared. God has prprepared everything. Jesus says everything is ready, but the question is, are you paying attention? Are you paying attention? You know, we, we love to hold on to this scripture. We talk about it. We, we probably rehearse it in the mornings. His mercies are new every. See, what if that scripture wasn't an excuse for you to live however you wanted? What if that scripture was an invitation to wake up every day and see what God has prepared? Look at what God has prepared. Everything is ready. It's an invitation to not live life on our terms, but to live according to his. It's an invitation into what he has already prepared. The life he has for you has already been prepared. For you are his workmanship. You are his workmanship created for good works that he has already prepared. The life that God has for you you do not have to create because it has already been prepared. You have to wake up and accept the invitation for what God has prepared. We doing okay? A couple of closing thoughts here and we're done. I want you to notice they reject the invitation how many times? Twice, right? Here's what I think. I think the first time they reject him signifies, I think, them rejecting the prophets. I think the second time they reject him signifies them rejecting the son. So we're talking about Israel here, right? We're talking about the religious leaders. He, he sends his prophets. 
Remember he sent John? They failed to acknowledge who John was, so Jesus doesn't tell them who he is because if they cannot accept John, then how are they going to accept him? Now, let me talk to you for a moment as we conclude here. I think the first time you reject God, you reject his law. You reject his law. I think the second time you reject God, you reject his grace. The prophets came with the law. Jesus came with with grace. Now I need you to catch this. When you reject the law, you reject what God says. When you reject grace, you reject who God is. You reject God's law, you reject what he says. When you reject his grace, you reject who he is. The Lord is gracious and merciful. Not not the Lord is lawful. You reject his law. You reject what he says. When you reject grace, you reject who he is. Jesus said that he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. In other words, he's trying to get your attention off of the law onto the law maker. When you reject grace, you reject who he is because he is gracious and merciful. He he only gets angry after the second rejection. Because the second rejection is the rejection of him. When we reject Jesus, we're not rejecting God's law, we're rejecting God. Now here's the question that we have to answer and that you have to answer. Where in your life are you rejecting what God has prepared? Where are you rejecting what God has prepared for you? Where are you not paying attention to all that is ready, to all that has been prepared, to all that God has done? See, I I, I, I want to apply this to us because um, ultimately he's talking to religious leaders and we know, we know, we know ultimately what he, he is, he is talking to them about is, is receiving him, uh, stopping them from being blind because uh, they are lost in their religious activity. And so they're religious, they're spiritual, but they're dead. And so without Jesus, any religious activity is dead. There's no life in it even though it might give you some sort of uh, relief, it might calm you down, it might, it might do whatever it does for you. We know there's plenty of spiritual practices that are doing something for people. But without Jesus, it's dead. 
Jesus says, I am the door. I am the door. At the end of the day, there's only one door. There's only one door that leads to the Father, that leads to eternal life, and it is Jesus and the religious that people that he is speaking to fail to see this. That they are the ones in the story constantly rejecting what God continues to prepare. And so what and where are you rejecting what God prepares for you? Now for us, it's not the matter of accepting Jesus. For us, it's the matter of living life in Jesus. Living life in him, living life with him, and living life through him. So for us, it's, it's not, the issue isn't salvation. For us, the issue is walking out that salvation. The issue for us is discipleship. The issue for us is the journey of following Jesus in this chaotic mess that we call life. Now, I like to just point out, just here, I just want to draw a a, a little timeline for you here. So let's say salvation is here. And this is your life before salvation. We We could say it's before Christ, BC. And then this is your life in Christ. And salvation happens here. And here is the place you receive, according to the Bible, according to scripture, here is the place that you receive something called grace. You receive the second invitation from the king. You with me so far? Now here's, here's my question. My question is this. What happens to grace after salvation. What happens to grace after salvation? And for some of you, grace after salvation is an excuse to live life before Christ. That's why grace exists in your life. So that you have an excuse to live the life you had before Christ. Now, according to scripture, that's not why grace exists. Grace does not exist as an excuse to live a life before Christ. Grace exists to empower you to live life in Christ. Grace is the thing that empowers you to live the kingdom life. The rule and the reign of God. Grace brings you under the rule and the reign of God, but it empowers you to live a life in Christ. So what happened to your grace after salvation? What role does grace play in your life? 
Does it open your eyes, widen the horizons to see what God has prepared, empowering you to live in it, walk in it, step in it, forgetting what is old, forgetting the past, forgetting what is dead and stepping into everything that is new and alive in Jesus or does grace shut your eyes and narrow all the possibilities of living a free life in Christ and it closes all of those possibilities and all you see is something that allows you to live the same old life. See, I'd like to propose that God does not just want your heart. God wants your will. God does not just want your heart. He wants your will. He he is not after you just having a warm, fuzzy feeling when you think about him. He's after your will. Which is why the Bible uses the language of the soul, which is an all-encompassing word, an idea of your mind, your will, and your emotions. It's your whole self that God is after. But in North America, we just want God to have our hearts. But our ancestors, ancient followers of Jesus, would not have understood it as such. They, they would understand that God is not just after their heart. He's after their will. He's not just after your feelings. He's after your decisions. And that's what we call discipleship. The journey of giving him our decisions. Our well, see, two kinds of people exist that both will miss God. Number one, the kinds of people that Jesus is talking to who perform for God and miss him, perform with religious activities, perform um, with, 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 their, with their pious ways and attitudes and see themselves standing above and tall everyone else. Remember, Jesus tells the story. There, there was, there was a, a, a religious man uh, who, who was in the, the marketplace and he prayed out loud. And he, and he thanked God for all the good that he did and he thanked God that he's not like this tax collector. Meanwhile, the tax collector prayed too, beating his chest saying, God, have mercy on me. And Jesus said, only one of those men went home right with God, and it was the tax collector. So performing for God you can still miss him. In performing for God, you can still miss God. So that's category number one. Category number two, which is probably more relatable to our culture, is that you only 
live for his benefits and you miss him. God rescued Israel from 400 years of slavery so that they could enter a season of wilderness where they would learn to worship him. But they could not worship God because all they wanted was his benefits. We're hungry. We're thirsty. We're tired. You brought us out to be killed. We were better off in Egypt. They only wanted to benefit from God. And they missed him. So religious activity and the manipulation of grace to get God's benefits are both ways that you can rob yourself of the life that God has for you. You rob yourself of the life that God has for you. I love what Dallas Willard says. He says, grace is God acting in our lives to accomplish what we cannot accomplish on our own. I would like to propose that grace is God's activity in your life. Grace is the thing that allows you to move forward into the life that Jesus has for you. It's life in him. And the invitation is still there. The invitation is still there. So tomorrow when you wake up and his mercies are new, would you see that as an invitation to step in, to walk in to the life that he has prepared? Because everything is ready. Would you pray with me? God, thank you so much for these moments. Lord, we're blessed to know you, to have you, and to hear from you. And Lord, we believe by faith that we have heard from you tonight. Your ways are higher, your ways are greater. We thank you that you are gracious and merciful. And yet, Lord, your kingdom is not without its standard. And so we pray, Father, that we would not be those who only give you our heart without giving you our will. Holy Spirit, do a work in us that propels us forward into being disciples of Jesus who have given over our feelings, but also our decisions. Allow us to advance, allow us to grow, allow us to progress. Let us be empowered by your grace, your activity in our lives. Let us wake up. And the next time we recount your mercies. Let us see that as an invitation, not an excuse. God, we want to live for your glory. We want you to have the fruit of your vineyard. 
We bless your name. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen.